Today's podcast is brought to you by Kills. The next time you need to deliver a professional paint job with results that last, make sure you're primed to win by using Kills Primer before you top coat. For over 40 years, Kills has created a full range of hardworking primers formulated to solve a variety of common problems on any surface and substrate and meet the demands of real job sites. From general purpose to specialty, both indoor and out, you can count on Kills Primers for results you can be proud of for years to come. To learn more about Kills Primers, go to kills.com slash primers. Kills, every project is worth it. Welcome to Paint Radio with your host, Emily Howard and Andrew Dwyer. Welcome back, Paint Radio, the APC podcast. I'm Andrew. Emily is here. And, of course, a huge thing that we do at APC, something we love, is just talking about the community of painting contractors, of how we can all learn from each other, whether you know someone personally, whether you know them only through social media, whether you get to meet them at an event. The networking element of any industry is critically important. And we like to think that while we're not a match game, Emily, we do connect Plenty of contractors. Would you agree? We try. Yeah, even if it's just virtually. Whether you're reading about them in the magazine or you listen to them on the podcast or see them on social media. And so we've got an interesting opportunity to do that today. We've got Aaron Moore with us. And most people, I think, are familiar with Aaron. He's president of PPD Painting. He's also co-founder of the Commercial Painting Industry Association. Their website is thecpia.com. Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. And Aaron's buddy, Aaron brought a buddy with him and uh, all the way from Australia. And that's Jared Higgins of Higgins Coatings, again, in Australia. They're a, a relatively beefy commercial and maintenance painting company out there in Australia. Jared, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Andrew and Emily. It's a pleasure to be here. So Higgins Coatings, God bless them. I get the impression they're just good folk who love good folk said, you know what? Let's have an open house. Let's have an event. Let's bring people in. Let's get to know each other. And sure enough, he had, Jared, is it fair to call it an open house? You basically, you invited people from all over the world, painting people to come to your facilities to talk shop. Is that an accurate description or is that a terrible description of what you did? Well, I have a probably open house is probably has a different meaning. Now, look, effectively, we asked a number of contractors from various countries around the world that we've gone and visited over the years, and we thought it'd be nice. Everyone's talked about wanting to come to Australia, so we thought it was great just to put on a, a conference. I don't know what you want to call it, really, but we just got, I think it was about 15 like-minded contractors together from Germany, uh, America, and the UK, and um, just shared shared information with each other. And Aaron Moore was one of those people, and if it weren't for the fact that Aaron lives in Montana, you probably would have stayed in Australia, right? <laughs> now, well, I've got to know Aaron over the years, and uh, he's a great friend, and uh, always enjoyed his time and his, his company, and uh, sharing sharing lots of ideas and information with him. Nice. Well, before we jump too far ahead, Jared, why don't you just give listeners an idea of of what Higgins Coatings does, the operation, the size, and don't be shy, don't be humble about the size of of the operation over there. Tell us about the work you guys do, what your involvement is. 
help us understand Higgins Coatings. Okay, well, the, the company was formed in 1949 when my father came out from Ireland. Um, he had the choice. Well, I've got to go back a step. When the old man was about 16, he, he borrowed his brother's passport. He lived in Ireland. And because there was a famine on back then, he used to hop on the boat under his brother's passport and um, go over to London and uh, at the age of 16 and start um, working on building sites. And the easiest um, one of the trades that he liked to take up was, uh, was painting. So everybody knew he wasn't a painter, but he was a hard worker. So he gave it a crack and he'd send his money back home to the family in Ireland. At the age of, I think, about 25, he had the choice. He had two brothers and a sister in America. He had a brother and a sister in, in London. Uh, so he, of course, decided to come to Australia on his own. So um, he was one of those uh, two Bob Irishmen uh, that came out here and uh, didn't know anybody and started a painting business. And really, the business has just grown from there. Um, about 40-odd years ago, my two brothers, John and Peter, got involved in the painting business. Uh, and then I got involved a few years later. One of the difficult things was when you're a one state, one office business and you've got one family living off a business, it's hard to bring another three families to live off that business. So then we had to sort of change some direction and get involved in some other businesses and also look at how we grow the painting business. Today we're a business 74 years old. This year sales will be somewhere in the vicinity of 150 million. Our revenue will be about 135 million. The goal of the business is to make around 10% profit on what we do. We have about 1,300 painters based in 25 locations around Australia. One thing you'll find in Australia is very much all of all the branch offices are, are really around the, the edge of Australia, uh, and there's not a lot in the middle of it. We have about yeah, 1,300 painters, about 180 office staff that do all the, everything from the estimating, the selling, the administration, the management, and whatever else needs to get done to, to run the business at this size. That's amazing. We don't see that many businesses of that size here. And so, Aaron, I'm curious, how did you all connect and how did you end up over there in Australia? Well, the original connection was through the CPIA. Um, I think as Jared has a couple of key guys that run offices that are part of our peer groups. And so I made some close personal relationships. They came over the States. We got to know each other. And, you know, he extended the invite after getting to know one another. And I thought, you know, we're always looking to grow our business. And, you know, as, uh, Jared and his team is somebody that I certainly look up to. And so it was a, it was kind of a no brainer for the opportunity to like really get one on one with someone like Jared, who's built a business like that. And also to meet his team and see like, okay, what are the types of people like, what are the types of people that I need to put in place to continue to grow in that manner? You know, I mean, we've been, we started in 2004, you know, so from 1950 to 2004, a lot of things have happened. So I'm still in the early stages. So to be able to mimic and learn from a company that's gone through the growing pains and done it is really inspirational. And it's also enlightening and to be able to have, have a relationship with somebody that you can pick up the phone and call or send an email to and they respond to you that's been through it is just invaluable to a guy like me. There really aren't that many companies of this size in the U.S., right? I mean, that's it's a very small handful. Yeah. And Jared, you're 74 years old. When did you all start growing Higgins Painting? When did you guys start growing to, to the size that you are today? What did that journey look like? Uh, look, I, I, th I think it was in the 90s we went to uh, New South Wales, and then the, the 2000s we went to Queensland. 
And then okay. sort of, I was very fortunate. We had a, a gentleman join our business who'd done it before with a, another business. So it's easy to make a lot of mistakes as you go and open up new branches. There's cultures of um, within um, territories or states uh, that vary. Most people are pretty good at what they're doing. It's hard to find new people. So you really go in quite blind and you generally pick up the people that most people don't want to employ. And you generally win business at very low margins and then you do it for a period of time. You say, this is a lot more difficult than what I thought. Why did I ever come here? But then over a period of time, you learn, you learn to make sure you don't repeat those mistakes and uh, you actually get quite good at, at doing it. And it makes you realize that there's a, you know, there's a lot of opportunities out there and there's a lot of markets. You know, we generally try to work in um, markets that might have a hundred thousand population. But it's also, you look at the market segment and work out what type of work they do and is there an ongoing industry there? That's probably the thing that really promotes um, the thinking behind what we do. So how did you all, 25 locations, sounds like you started in the 90s. Are you, I mean, roughly a, a branch, a new location a year, or did it look like one in five years and then you brought on a second one and then it came faster? How did that go? Look, it started off slowly, but then you get some momentum and, and uh, then the customers really help you drive that as well. They, you know, we, we do a lot of work for what we call um, uh, customers with multiple sites. And once you do a good job with one and they've got a hundred odd sites, they really try to push you across the rest of them. And that also probably promoted our thinking to go to new locations because we already had some work there. It's a lot easier to go somewhere where you've got some work and some backlog versus starting from scratch where you, you know, you're pounding the pavement, knocking on doors, trying to pick up some work. What's your focus these days? What's, what challenge are you trying to meet? Are you trying to grow top-line revenue? Or are, you, are you trying to stick with the revenue you have, become more profitable, move in the more specific types of work? What's the challenge for 2023? Look, it's all of the above. We are growing revenue at the moment. Obviously, having COVID for the last two years, we saw a big dip in our revenue. Victoria was the longest uh, lockdown in the world, I believe. I think we were locked down for like 226 days. So um, pretty hard to run a, a painting business when you can't go on site and uh, work on projects. So, yeah, if you go back to we probably had our um, best year in probably 2019, 2020. Then we dipped down for a couple of years. We're back up above where we were in 2019-20. And we look, we just see there's a lot more opportunity for us, to, for us to grow the business. And, you know, so we've got 25 offices now. I think we're opening three this year in various states. And look, the, the business should get to 200 million in the next few years. That's the, that's the goal anyway. Aaron, when, when you were over there, was there anything that, that specifically struck you? Not necessarily maybe something that you wanted to emulate, I though, if, that. if that's the case, that's good too. Or anything that perhaps is unique? either to the Higgins operation or to just the, the painting industry in, in Australia? What, what struck you? I mean, there's a handful of things that I would say. I mean, I think that like the biggest thing that stood out to me, and I've expressed this numerous times to the guys, is just that it made me feel good that I don't feel like we're that much different in the scheme of an office to office. Like we were actually, we weren't just in Melbourne. We went from Melbourne to Sydney up to the Gold Coast, and we got to see a, a lot of their different offices ranging from their largest corporate office all the way to like, you know, some other medium offices, you know, and for me to look at it and say, Hey, they're not that much different. The challenges aren't that much different. The work they do is not that much different. They just have 30 X the offices that we have. And so like, how do we build that and look at the structure 
of what they're doing in each office and look at the, like, they were very transparent in their org chart and the hierarchy and like how these offices are structured and the roles that are key and the roles that are important. And it's like, are we setting our offices up that way? And when we branch out to another office, are we looking to hire the right people first, the right people second, and then build off of that? And then if we can do that, you know, the States has a, a, a zillion markets, so we could really replicate that over and over. So I think that was one of the things that I saw where it like, it kind of broke it down and made this kind of like you hear the number of, you know, you take a five or $10 million company and then you look at a $150 million company and you're, you know, it's very intimidating in those terms. And then you look at it and go, actually, it's a culmination of 25, five to $10 million companies that all feed into this mothership and they're able to help each other. And they have this awesome culture. And so to me, it was really refreshing to say like, hey, this isn't out of reach. It's not impossible. And I think that's one of the things that Jared's always been encouraging about is like, this isn't impossible. It's hard, but it's not impossible. And what you're doing, you're on the right track. And this is the stuff that could help you. So to me, that was one of the the highlights there. And I think the one thing that I would say if I noticed something special about the Higgins organization is just the general competence of the people that work there. They've done a great job of building a great team. They have very competent managers and very competent office staff. And you just get this real feeling when you're going through each one of their offices that everyone kind of knows what they're doing. It doesn't, it doesn't really miss a beat. And I think that that's such a key thing as you build out a bigger organization is like, how do you culturally keep that level of competence high across all branches and have that kind of central tone, if you will, from each different office that you go, well, that's a Higgins company person. You can tell they tow the line or, you know, whatever, whatever example you want to use or phrase you want to use. But that was a thing to me that really, A, made me feel inspired and B, it made it feel not quite as intimidating and, and, and then just give me something to work towards. So Emily, that's, that's high praise. <laughs> Man, I mean, you can, you can see why Aaron runs a, an association, right? Because for him to zero in, on that aspect, one is a compliment to Jared, but it's also a compliment to Aaron that he zeroes in on that type of mentality and teamwork and culture and that same sort of focus on things like that is certainly probably what also led him to start a commercial painting association. I mean, I think that's an excellent point. You know, Aaron brought up, I think we hear a lot about competence levels in the painting industry that people don't feel are high enough. What kind of training do you do? What what do you attribute that high level of competence of, of all of your employees to? I guess you've probably got to go back a step, and the first thing you've got to do is create consistency across the business. And you do that by um, creating a, a culture of respect for each other each other in the organisation. I think you do that. Yeah, you know, we, we were very clear with all of our people. We Excuse my French, but we have a no dickhead policy in our business because... Uh, it does make a real difference. You know, you, you, you'll find that, you know, I've always said to all of our guys, if I go into a room with uh, full of Higgins people, the one that I won't go over and talk to is the one that shouldn't be working in the business because if I can't go over and talk to them, there's a fair chance my client won't be able to do that either because I feel like I'm pretty relaxed going and talking to people. So, and it's that one that one person that will always bring the rest of the team down or, you know, it's that one person that you'll put more time into. These staff are great. They just get on with the job and they do the right thing. But it's always just making sure uh, that you don't have that one person that will always bring the rest of the team down, which I think uh, we allow that to happen because they might be a good performer or win good sales or they might have a, a profitable business. But we've just got to be very, very careful of that. So that's probably a big thing. And look, it's also, you know, you've got to have 
good systems, you've got to have good procedures, you've got to have um, make sure people work within the, the boundaries that you set, you've got to give them freedom to do their job. But they, everybody understands that we've got a set of rules and they're the rules that we play by. If you want to go outside that, talk to us and then we'll, we'll, we'll assess it at the time. Because normally that's when things go wrong, when people get their imagination going and think they can do great things. One of the issues also is you know, the focus is changing the focus. of it's We, we talk a lot about revenue because revenue um, uh, allows us to push our chest out and we feel pretty good about it. But revenue is not why we turn up to business every day. It's for profit. And you'll see a lot of companies that don't like talking about profit because their profit ain't that good. Well, and Aaron, was there anything, I think that's great policy that you guys have there. Aaron, was there any, were there any changes that you made to your business or any ideas that you got home and like immediately started working on? Partially, you know, it's a mindset change for me more than it was like uh, actual policy change. And I think one of the other things that Jared kind of harps on is that like all of these people that work for you, they run their own business. It's called home, you know? And that was one of the things that he, that struck me is like, we don't credit people enough or we don't give people enough opportunity to speak or spread their only like, this is the way we're going to do it. And it's like, all these people are very competent people. Somehow they get up and they get their car started and they get to work and they make their lunch or they, you know, they, and they pay their bills and they run all this stuff at home, you know? So all of these people that work for us really have the aptitude to take on a lot of tasks. And sometimes we pigeonhole them into not allowing them to take on tasks, or this is how you're going to do it. And I think that for me, if there was something that I took home that I could implement immediately, it was just like a little bit of that shift in mentality to be like, okay, what do you think? Asking those questions that are like, why doesn't, why do I always have to have all the answers? Maybe somebody else has the answer that's going to be better than the one. And maybe I should be considering other people's opinions before putting mine first. So if there was something that I would say that I took from it immediately, it wasn't like walk in and say, we're going to change the way we paint or we were just revolutionize the industry. It was really an internal thing for me that I think just kind of changed the way that I look at the people who work for us and look at like, what can I, what more can I pull than just like, how do we produce paint jobs? And I think that that's a very valuable lesson that I learned on the trip. If I can just add to that, I think it's a very good point. Uh, you look at our, our staff, at the end of the day, they all do run their own business and it is called home. You know, they are the finance director when it comes to the money coming in and out of the house. They are also the training and developers of their, their children. We probably call it HR. Uh, so you can look at a range of different roles in businesses and uh, all of our staff do it outside work and we ask them to come to work, park their brain out, outside and just do it the way we want it done. And I'm sure there you go. the people doing the job generally have the better ideas on how to, how to make it better. It's a matter of listening to them. So Yeah. Jared, based on your exposure to the U.S. market, whether that's, you know, what you hear overseas, what you learn firsthand from, from these contractors who came to visit you, um, what you experienced, you know, the times that you've been here in the United States, is there anything that sticks out? for you about the U.S. market? I know this is an incredibly broad question, and I'm not suggesting that that you're going to accuse everyone with the same broad brush, but it, it could be a positive or, frankly, it could be a negative because I think whenever you bring somebody new into your orbit, one of the ways to benefit from that is to, to benefit from their fresh eyes. And so I don't ask you this as a way of setting you up to compliment the U.S. Feel free to say, feel free to say whatever you like. What, what strikes you about the U.S. market? Well, I've got to, if I can go back in time, about 30 years ago, I came over to the America, I came over to America and met up with a, a gentleman by Monroe Porter. I've mentioned him to Aaron in the past. He used to get 
30 to 40 American contractors together. They're all small guys that worked in individual states. They didn't cross borders, so they were never going to compete against each other. And he used to get them together. And before we went, we'd go over there four or five days. Uh, we'd share a range of information about our businesses that we had pre-questions that we had to, we had to complete. Then he'd put all of these, this information up on the board and you'd have a list of all of these contractors and then you'd have these 20 points and then we'd have to fill them in. It'd be everything from level of prospecting, quoting, your hit rates on winning work, how you assess work, how you manage, what your safety's like, what your debtor control's like, through to repeat business training development. There was a range of areas. Then it'd have stuff like turnover to full, full-time employee, profit to full-time employee. Then it'd get down to things that's like cars. How many cars do you have? per full-time employee, and petrol usage and paint usage. And, and what was really interesting is he used to, he was like the teacher up the front of the class, and he used to go and circle the really good ones and then he'd go circle the really bad ones. And we'd have to get up and explain why our rating was either above standard or below standard. And I think going back to that stage, really, that was a real eye-opener for me, and we did that for a number of years, and I was lucky to be, uh, there was two of us from Australia that got over there to do that. So that was sort of the start of um, the learnings that I had over there. To specifically answer your question, it surprises me that there are not more national contractors. You look at the size of the market. But I guess within the state, you can be a very large, successful contractor without having to cross borders. I think uh, we do things incredibly similar. I think our pay rates are pretty similar. But it also comes back to uh, whether it's a union or non-union as well. I know spending time with Steve Hester, who's union, our union part of our business is very similar to his, where you have the high rates and then you have your rostered days off and you have your different allowances for different things. But on the repaint side, uh, again, the wage rates are, are similar. Uh, I think you, what you guys do with spraying is um, way ahead of what we do. We did have time with Graco over there and they came out here as well and They've been a, a fantastic partner for us. Last year, we did showcase the, 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 Graco, the Graco stuff. Uh, sprays in 25 of our offices around the country. So that was a big, big thing. And, yeah, the improvement on productivity we got out of, out of that was just um, fantastic. Most of the people I've met through the CPIA, we, we all do things similar. Yeah, you can even go on to, like, Germany. You know, yeah, we haven't talked about the Heinrich Smith business in Germany and also the Bell Group in the U.K., just two massive organisations. Heinrich's over a billion turnover with 6,000 painters and Bell are about 300 million and I think they're about 2,500 painters. And again, doesn't matter the size, we just all do stuff. Painting's probably pretty boring. It doesn't change that much, does it? Are there companies your size in Australia? That's Is your competition typically companies that are closer to your size or do you have a lot of smaller companies like we do here in the U.S.? Look, we have one opposition, which we are very similar in size. They've recently been, been bought out by a Japanese company. And look, I, I think they're a much larger business with the other side of the business in, in personnel. So, yeah, look, it'll be interesting to see how they, they progress over the next few years. I think they have more interest in the other parts of the business than they have on the painting business. But then, look, there are a lot of very good state-based painting contractors in Australia. So, yeah, look, we have a range of markets. Well, obviously, they're branch and state-based, but then it's also a real focus for us is try and get out of the weeds and not have to compete against every other painter. So we, we chase a lot of national work. The other day, we picked up 180 sites that have to be done in three months. No one else can really do that. We've got one opposition there, so all of a sudden, it just narrows down the uh, the competition. And, and that's a big thing that we really try to spend a lot of time on, trying to have less competition, what we do with long-term maintenance painting, 
is, is, is a good opportunity for us. And I guess the other thing we really try to spend time on is um, uh, understanding the market segments that we work in and also understanding what sort of margin we make out of the market segments. Most people want to chase what we call body corporate. You probably call it condos, apartments over there. Great market, lots of work. The strike rate on winning that works low and the gross margin on it is generally lower than some of the other areas. So we really try to channel our people into the markets where we think we can get less competition, better return. It might be a bit harder to get in, but that's the sort of thing that we try to do. So it is interesting that we don't have that many larger companies. Aaron, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, and especially with your role with CPIA. I mean, do you think that that's changing? Is that is that part of why, why you're, you've gone over to Australia to learn a little bit more about that? Like, what do you think the future is when we think about the the typical size of a painting company in the U.S. You know, I think that there are some different differing factors, but they can be overcome. And so that was one of the things that, you know, he mentioned the different states. You know, we have different states <laughs> and different, you know, like for them, the in Melbourne, it's a different market than it is in Perth. Or, you know, like they're the opposite sides of the country. You know, the same differences that you might see from a New York to an L.A. And, you mm-hmm. know, we have a little bit different between the organized labor in the U.S. is probably a little stronger in the major metro areas than it is in in Australia. So that presents some challenges, but I definitely don't think that it's not doable. I think that certainly there's opportunity there, and I just think it takes the right person and the right team and the right visionary to really make it happen. And that's why I think that like this idea of, you know, and I think what Jared touched on with, you know, the Bell Group and Heinrich Schmidt group, that's a whole nother world of, you know, you look at a company like Germany, a guy running a billion dollar company. I mean, that's the beauty of this whole sharing and the organization. If we t- tie it to the CPIA, which isn't really what the call is about, but I had a call with Heinrich this morning, you know, him and I are friends and, you know, I'm talking to a guy that's running a billion dollar organization and I'm just a little guy. And he's like, Hey, well, little guy relative to what they're doing. And He's like, I don't think it's that much different. You know, like you just have less offices. Like this is exactly what we want. And, you know, I know we've been talking about different ways that how can we bring our people to him or he bring his people to us and like learn things. And I think, you know, one of the things that I learned, I don't want to kiss Jared's ass too bad because then I'll be ever beholden. But he, he made a joke on one of the nights when he gave a little toast and he said, well, we want to welcome the Americans. It's weird that when you got off the coast of LA, you didn't fall off the end of the world, you know, and <laughs> and, it, and it's a joke, but, you know, at the same time, we don't always see all these different perspectives from around the world. And I think that, like, it's really neat to see and be able to have these conversations internationally. And to me, like, it's something that was, like, something I didn't expect with the CPIA, and it's been so enlightening. And, like, to have access to these people, and it's really inspirational to say, like, this is completely possible, and it's completely possible in the United States, and there's no reason not to do it. It just is trying to figure out how does it work, and with the help of, you know, guys that have done it before. And obviously, you know, Heinrich Schmidt's been in business 50 years longer than Higgins, you know? So, like, that's the next phase, right? So maybe I'm Higgins 50 years ago, and... And Higgins is just 50 years behind Schmidt. And so we're all kind of learning from each other and we're all different generations and different ages. And it's been such an amazing uh, thing to be part of. And it's really cool. And I'm really thankful to be have been part of it. It's it's really interesting. You talk about Heinrich, you know, so we have 25 offices. I think Heinrich's got like 189 offices around the country. And uh, it's, it's sort of like the McDonald's of painting in some respects. <laughs> 
And he's got an incredible training regime. We, I was over at his office a couple of years ago. We're going back there next year and uh, just to see how they do things. It's, it's outstanding. And, Jared, I love that you mentioned uh, Monroe Porter of Proof Management Consultants. He and, and even Irv Chasen before him, they yeah. they were uh, longtime contributors to APC dating back to the 80s, I think as recently as five, six, seven years ago. So we're very familiar with Monroe and Irv, and it's also a testament to the, you know, what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, which is networking. Those networking groups that you were talking about that Monroe put together that whether a networking group at CPIA, it's or some just informal group that you chat with, just so important. So before we close it up, let me ask you about this, Jared, just about how painters are viewed in Australia. Um, cause certainly in the US, I don't, I don't want to be bombastic here. They're not like spat upon by any stretch, but it's, they're not held in the highest regard by society. How are they viewed in Australia and what, what's the, what's the wage pressure like? Are, are people generally satisfied with their wages? Are you under a lot of pressure to raise wages? What's the, what's the status of things? Look, I, I think it's changed over the last number of years. I think, it, and you know, we're all accountable for it. I think the lack of um, training apprenticeships that have been going 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 through uh, the system has, has dropped off. It's interesting after spending time in Germany and the UK, uh, there seems to be a more natural progression from once you leave school, you will go and do a trade. We're here in Australia. Um, that used to be the case, and that was probably from all the migration that came in from various parts of the world. I think the issue now is trying to excite kids to wanting to go and do a trade. They'll, they'll start doing it. The problem we have, it's a four-year apprenticeship. It's probably too long. We've got to work out how to reduce that in time. Uh, and take out the things that they'll probably never, ever do it either. So it's hard to find apprentices. It's expensive to put on apprentices. Their wages are comparable to the year they're in, but it comes back to all these other additional um, costs or uh, allowances that they receive, which then prohibits it. But, you know, we're, we've got a goal. We uh, want to get 5% of our workforce uh, as apprentices in our business over the next couple of years. We've just built a training centre up in um, Queensland that we're going to start doing that. So between trainees, and when I say trainees, that's for bringing kids into the into the office and teaching them estimating, selling, administration and operations and working them through the business as well. It's an ongoing battle, the training side of it. But um, the good people, yeah, we had a lot of great apprentices who are running our business today who started, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago in the business, and they're they're unbelievable. So uh, it worked so well, we stopped doing it. So uh, <laughs> the goal is to actually get it up and running again. Um, but kids are, are getting, they don't want to do something for four years. Yeah, you know, they get bored pretty quickly, and they it's, it's up to us to work out how to keep them excited. And that might be moving them around to different parts of the business. So uh, we'll see how that progresses. Well, Jared Higgins, man, that's... Uh... Fascinating stuff. It's great to hear. Um, well, first of all, congratulations on your success. We love the attitude, the enthusiasm, the candor spirit. Well, that's why we do these podcasts, right? To be inspired by each other. And you certainly have an inspiring story and a very infectious uh, attitude, despite all the things that Aaron said before we hit record. Um, I'm kidding, Aaron. <laughs> but Thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, sharing with us a glimpse of, of how things are going over there. Look, thank you very much. It's uh, been an absolute privilege. Uh, you know, you, you, it's funny, you sit back and you just do what you do every day and uh, you don't really spend a lot of time sharing your story. And uh, it's been a privilege to be able to share a little a little snippet of it. And uh, 
I'll look forward to continuing uh, our journey of catching up on a regular basis and um, help. We'll, we'll all help each other get better at what we do. So it's uh, no, thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Emily. And Aaron, always a pleasure. Man, I, I love it. That's that's wonderful. And Aaron, who, of course, again, is president of PPD Painting, but also the co-founder of the Commercial Painting Industry Association. The website is the cpia.com what's the hook why people should join is it because as soon as you join you get to go to australia is that the deal (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know to me it's just the access to the people you know it's the network right so that's that's what it's always been about is like just trying to put together people that are actually doing it guys like jared in the room and being able to bounce stuff off and i and i like to think that you know, I bring some level of enthusiasm and some things that I can show Jared and that we talk about stuff that, you know, maybe I bring something that he can learn from me. You know, obviously it's, it's certainly a heavier street. I probably have a lot more to learn from him, but at the same time, you know, there's always somebody that comes out that you're like, man, that's a great idea. And so, you know, what we want to be is inclusive, but what we really want to be is just an organization of doers, guys that are actually doing it, that we're learning from each other's experience and not so much guys telling one another what to do. It's just about looking into each other and being transparent and being vulnerable and being honest about who we are and what we're doing. And I think that that's been a message that has really resonated with the members of the association. And I think we've also had great success at growing the association through those interactions. And we'll continue to have those interactions moving forward. And the opportunity to have these large global companies involved, where where else can you find that? I mean, I think that that's, it's just such a game changer. It's completely changed my outlook on the way I look at the world and business in general. We kind of have an ostrich approach sometimes in the U.S. to it's all here. And there's so much to learn from other people around the world. And I'm just thankful to be exposed to it. And it's a, it's a byproduct that was unexpected when we started this. And it's, uh, it was heavily forged by the Higgins group and, and Nick and some of the teammates at, uh, at Jared's organization have been instrumental in that and connecting those dots. So it's been a, it's been a really neat journey and I hope to continue doing that in the future and appreciate APC for picking this up and, you know, having us on and, putting our message, you know, of the international piece on American Paint Contractor magazine and like <laughs> put it out in front of people and saying like, hey, like there's a lot more than just the American Paint Contractor, you know, so maybe we'll re- APC could be American <laughs> and Australian Paint Contractor. <laughs> it's it's really interesting. Sorry to go on a little bit longer, but it's um, really interesting that if you look, if you view your opposition as opposition, you'll tend to find, you'll be critical about them and find fault in what they do. But if you, like I look at Aaron and Aaron looks at me, we don't look at each other as opposition. So what we're always trying to do is find the good in what we do and how we can learn from each other. It's a very different mindset looking at a competitor versus a partner. And um, I think that's what we're doing now. I love it. I absolutely love it. To me, what I'm hearing, the through line I'm hearing from both of you, but also from so many people that we talk to in what Emily and I do, the beauty of being involved in APC is that just this idea that the way things are are not the way things have to be, that that you can change. You got to have the confidence to have humility to be open to change. And that's, uh, that's what Aaron's talking about. That's what Jared's talking about. It's, uh, tremendous. You, you gotta take time away. You gotta look at things with fresh eyes. As Aaron said, change your mindset, change your, um, change the horizon, change your outlook. And you can do that by exposing yourself to other people, hearing what they do, understanding their challenges. Great. 
Great stuff. So thank you both for being on the podcast. This is what we love to do, and you're both fabulous to, to give us some of your time. And thank you, Aaron, for putting us in touch with Jared. For everybody else, man, if you, if you want more inspiration, if you, if you have the confidence to have the humility to change, go to paintmag.com. So many resources there to help you do things differently, do things better, have more fun, have more profit. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.